0: for being here at the Crossing this morning, I'm so glad you're here, and we're going to jump right into the Word this morning. Uh, If you know much about me, you know I love history, and so I want to begin with a story. Centuries ago, like 1500s, in the country of England, there was a man named William, and a lot of you are going to think immediately, I'm talking about Shakespeare, William Shakespeare. It's actually a different William, but you're in the right time period, actually. So this has been It's like a Shakespearean theater. This is the time period here. Uh, Artistic revolution all over Western Europe. Philosophy was being writ and talked about all the time during this time. But William loved the word of God. William was a scholar and a professor at Cambridge University, which is a, a very prestigious school in England. And he had a burden on his heart about the lack of availability of scripture around the world. You see, um, and these were kind of unpopular complaints for him to have at the time, but there were still some who agreed with him. And so William set out in this time period to translate the entire Bible, starting with the New Testament, from Greek to English, where the people of his homeland could read the word of God in their own tongue, where they could grow with the Lord. Now, this was the, the 13, I mean, the 1530s, this is right after Martin Luther had posted his theses and there's the big Protestant Reformation was going on, right? And, and so his home country being kind of uh, at war over this subject kicked him out. Now, William, of course, I'm talking about here is William Tyndale. And you may have heard that last name before because there's now like a Tyndale publishing house and his legacy lives on. But this is William Tyndale who lived, again, almost <clears throat> 500 years ago now. He felt so terrified of the fact that people's only access to the Word of God was through another person or through another language they can't understand that he stood up and decided to do something about it. So he did. He finished translating the New Testament from Greek to English. He made an English Bible, like maybe for the first time there in the 1500s. He was one of the first ones. There was one guy. Before him, but then he, uh, because he got kicked out of England, had to move to Germany to finish. And so when he finished the New Testament, he started working on the Torah, which is the beginning of the the Old Testament. And as he got there, he he, um, sometime during that time period was captured in Belgium. And I love this. I don't really love it. You're going to get an example of how dark I am sometimes. Uh, He was hung or choked to death. And then once he was dead, they burned him at the stake. So they kind of like doubled down on killing this man for the word of God. His only crime being that he was trying to translate the word of God when the various countries in Europe said, no, we're not supposed to do that. He's one of many, and you probably have thought of some other names already, uh, men who were around this time period or maybe a little before who had this same kind of burden on their heart for the word of God. You have... Um, William Tyndale down there in the bottom left, and then Martin Luther in the bottom right, uh, John Wycliffe, which is the top right, and then I think the guy in the top left is, uh, is Richard Bancroft. All four of these guys over a couple of centuries literally gave their life and death and work to trying to get the Holy Bible into people's hands. They, they, they fought and died for the word of God, and they clearly believed that this word of God could be powerful enough, then people's hands could change the world. And now, 500 years later, the same England that that kicked William Tyndale out has that word of God carved into parliament at their government buildings. And here in America, we have our president of the United States who swears into office on the Bible, right? In our courtrooms across the country, in order to give testimony, you have to put your hand on the Bible, right? And, and even in our everyday use, how many of you have ever been questioned that you're telling the truth, and you say, nope, hand on the Bible, that's the truth. We use it, and, and it's almost in danger of becoming a trope at this point, and not even something that we actually mean in seriousness about the Bible, because here's where I wanna start today. The numbers are crazy, but according to Barna, over 90% of Americans own a Bible, have it somewhere in their house, but less than 30% read it. Over 50% read it twice or less in the last year. The numbers here are staggering. And I, and I can't help but think this. The Bible has gone from a valuable artifact that a man of God would give his life to get it in the hands of another person. Two, basically the most widely available, least read book of all time. The most widely available, least read book of all time. Now, obviously, in this specific text, I'm talking about in America. I understand there are places in the world that still need the word, but in America, it's the most widely available Least read book of all time. So how did this happen? And what are we doing as the church? Where where are we standing up for the word of God and trying to build our lives and build our communities on the word of God? Well, Vic started us off last week talking about hearing from God, and that's where this whole um, series is gonna be based on. And today, I'm gonna continue that, but we're going to talk specifically about how do we hear the voice of Jesus in Scripture? So today is all about the Bible. And really, I want to probably zoom in a little bit even on that topic because this is a two-parter. Next week, we're going to continue talking about how do I hear the voice of Jesus in Scripture? So today, we're going to start with the first half of that. In order to allow the Word of God to work in your life, I think you have to understand what the Word of God is. And maybe get a little bit of an angle at it. Why? Why is it so important? And then next week, we'll kind of deal more with the the how, how. So what are you holding when you hold the Bible? What are you holding when you hold the Bible? That's what we're talking about today. And I'm going to teach through uh, what I would call vignettes, like small pictures about the Bible. So you see your notes, there's a bunch of headings, A this, A that. We're going to talk about what you're holding when you hold the Bible. And the first one is you're holding a window. The first thing you're holding when you're holding the Bible is you're holding a window, okay? Now stay with me and as you're writing that note, I'm going to read you uh, just a very, very brief example of what it means that the Bible is a window. Now this is a story that was penned by a philosopher named Karl Barth, but it was transcribed here that I'm gonna read by Eugene Peterson who I would say is a, um, a modern-day Tyndale, honestly. So check this out. Imagine that a group of men and women are living in a huge warehouse. They're born in the warehouse, they grow up in it, and they have everything that they need there for their needs and their comfort. There are no exits in the building, but there are windows. The windows, however, are often fogged over. They're thick with dust. They're never cleaned, and no one bothers to look out. And why would they? Because the warehouse is everything that they know and the warehouse has everything that they need, right? One day, a child decides he's gonna drag a step stool up and climb up and look out the window, right? He scrapes off the grime and he peers out of the window and what does he see? He sees people walking on a street and all of the sudden in that one moment, he realizes maybe there's more to life than the warehouse. He sees people beginning to gather. And then all of a sudden, before he knows it, the people that are gathered are all pointing up and looking. And and some of them are laughing. Some of them are just excited. But it's clear they're staring at something. So the kid pans up and he sees the ceiling of the warehouse. Right? And so here's, here's what we're getting at. Finally tired of watching these people on the street acting crazy, pointing up at nothing and getting excited about it, he asked, what's the point of stopping for no reason at all, pointing at nothing at all, talking up a storm about nothing? But the truth is that what those people saw, an airplane, maybe a flock of geese or a giant pile of of beautiful clouds, they really saw something and they were looking at something in the heavens. The warehouse people have no heavens. They just have a roof, they just have a ceiling. But what would happen if that kid, instead of getting discouraged and walking away saying they're all crazy, what if he were to elbow the window, climb out onto the street, all of a sudden, His entire reality would change as he spills out into sunlight and is probably dizzy and struck blind and and also stricken by awe and wonder at what he thought was real, not being all that there is. And this is where we get to the story. The, the, The guy that wrote this, Barth, he says this is what happens when we open the Bible. When we open the Bible, we are totally unfamiliar with the world of God, a world of creation and and, and salvation stretching endlessly above and beyond us. Life in the warehouse never prepared us for what's going on outside. And then then he ends with this, and I think this is so interesting. Despite this being the truth, um, there are adults in the warehouse who hear tale of the children looking out the window and seeing people and they find themselves scoffing, uh, and and they kind of dismiss the kids' stories because in the warehouse, they're completely in control. (laughs) They're in control of the world in ways that they could never be outside of the warehouse, and they wanna keep it that way. So here's the situation. I wanna make a couple of quick observations for us. In this scenario, the Bible's a window and we can go through the window to get to true reality. The truth of the matter is we can't drag God inside of our warehouse, inside of our little world. It's a one-way street. It's an opportunity to join his reality, not to, to stay cowering in ours and drag him into it. We also have to realize this, that we, um, we, we have to be the ones to climb into this new reality, to climb out of the warehouse. And so uh, this is the note I want you to take. Cracking um, open the word of God is how we get out of the warehouse. When we crack open the word of God, we step into the dizzying reality that there is so much more going on in the world when we open the scripture. And I want to put forth something you've probably thought of but maybe never followed out. <clears throat> Did you know the early Christians they didn't have a big leather-bound, you know, compendium of all the scriptures. If they were lucky, some of the early Christians like after Jesus, they might have had some hand-copied letters from Paul that had been handed around their their church and they could read. But they did not have like a big stack of books like we are able to have now. Instead, they were just a bunch of You know, dizzy, awestruck people by what had just transpired with Jesus. Reading stories of other awestruck people about what had just happened with Jesus. And that's the same for us. The Bible is a window for you to walk through the experiences of other people who have had an encounter with Jesus and their lives were changed. It's a window. The second thing that the, the, the Bible is, is it's a library. The Bible is a library. I know a lot of you probably already were aware that it's full of books, but um, you are holding, when you hold the Bible, a library. Um, you know, most of you probably already realize this, but the Bible contains many books from many authors over the course of many, many years A long time, this thing coming together. And so for just a moment, I want to show you a couple of the things that are contained in Scripture. And a lot of you may already know this. The Old Testament, the Hebrew word for the Old Testament is Tanakh. It's how they still describe the Old Testament today. And basically, it's I've color-coded it so you can see, it's separated into three parts. The Old Testament, the Tanakh, is separated into three parts. It's a library of many different books, but you can basically categorize them into three parts. The TAH means Torah. The Torah, it's the first five books of the Bible. It's the law, right? This is where you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? It's like a lot of people, um, especially the Jewish faith, are like the most important scriptures, the Torah, right? And then, secondly, you have the, the end part, right? And that is um, Nevim. I'm not sure how to say these words exactly, but basically it's a Hebrew word that means prophets. These are the people that that taught um, the scriptures, and also that had the word of God in their hearts, and they wrote books. I know that you've read some of them: Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. And then K for Ketuvim, which Ketuvim means the writings, the extra writings. So it's like poetry, songs, wisdom books. And already you see there's different types of writing in here. In the New Testament, strangely enough, there's actually three sections as well. You can easily break the books down into: there's the Gospels, there's the the Book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. So there's Gospels, there's Acts, and then there's letters from the Apostles, right? The Gospels is specifically a biographies about Jesus, right? Acts is mostly history, biography of the Apostles, and the letters are things that the Apostles wrote, right? And here's the point I wanna make about this library. Did you realize that since early Christianity, all of it, the Tanakh, the Gospel, the writings of the Apostles, Even the writings of the apostles, which were just coming out since early Christianity, these have all been considered God-breathed. They've all been considered the word of God that you can read, that you can take into yourself, and it will benefit you, right? Let's take a look at 2 Timothy. This is where we get this, this verse from. But as for you, continuing the things that you've learned and of which you are convinced, holding tightly to these truths, knowing from whom you learned them, saying, cling tightly to what you've learned. And then he goes on in verse 15 and says, and how from childhood you've known that these sacred writings, the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh we just talked about, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus, surrendering your entire self to him and having absolute confidence in his wisdom, power and goodness. I know that's wordy, but here's verse 16. Because all of this scripture, all of it is God breathed it's given by divine inspiration and it's, it's profitable for instruction, for conviction of sin, for correction, for training in righteousness, uh, learning to live in conformity to God's will both publicly and privately. And then in verse 17 where we end, um, so that the man of God may be complete and proficient, outfitted, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The scripture is God breathe? And it's all good for you. When you're holding the Bible, you're holding a library. Let me give you one more uh, quick example here about it being a library. Does anybody out there like to read, not the Bible, but other things? Like, yeah, fiction, novels, nonfiction. Yeah, some of you, good. That's cool. I think reading is a really, really special habit. I've recently picked it back up. And I'm reading a book right now that I doubt many people in the room have read or have heard of. It's called Lit by Mary Carr. And it's actually a memoir. It's a memoir of this lady who had a really tragic growing up years. Her mother was an alcoholic. And it it's, can be sometimes a little bit graphic as she comes to terms with the fact that she became an alcoholic too and had to learn how to find God in that and, and allow him to move her to a better place in life. And it's, it is a, a challenging read, right? And it's, like I said, it's kind of graphic. It includes alcoholism and and abuse, and and so sitting down with this book and a cup of coffee, it's an experience before bed, you know? But then I also sometimes sit down at nighttime with my daughters, my older daughters, and we'll read The Hobbit. Has anybody ever read The Hobbit before? A few of you? Yeah, some of you? Good. I think a lot of us have read that, right? So The Hobbit is a entirely different experience. I might still have a cup of coffee. I'm still doing it right before bed, but sitting down to read this with my girls a book that I've read a few times and now reading it with them and watching them come to, come to terms with, what is a troll, you know? What's a dragon? That's a completely different experience than reading that really difficult book that I'm reading on my own, right? And then what about with my youngest, my toddler? Sometimes I'll make a cup of coffee and we'll read uh, Muppet Babies, right? It's like a look and find uh, picture book. And she loves it. But here's the point. This is a completely different experiences of reading you know, before you go to bed. And, and I want to make this point about the scripture. Did you realize that inside the scripture is a wide gamut of genre? There are various types of books in the scripture. And you may go, well, you know, I pretty much need to know the stories and you know the, the writings of Paul, and that's pretty good, that's, that's enough for me, right? But the truth of the matter is, you know, reading, the genres in scripture that you find like less helpful or less attractive, they still serve a purpose and they still do something in your heart. And so for example, the narrative, the law, right? That teaches you, it helps your intelligence to grow. But I wanna put forth the Psalms, they help you to feel. They help you to understand that spiritually someone else has been through this before, right? There are other um, examples of this as well. But when you're holding the Bible, you're holding a library. And thank God that it's a library because it's not just an intelligent read. It's not just a thing that whoever's the most familiar is the best at the Bible, right? It's an emotional read, it's a spiritual read, and it's a personal interaction with the library. When you're holding the scripture, you're holding a library. When you're holding the scripture, you're also holding a meal. You're holding a meal when you're holding the Bible. Is anybody hungry yet this morning? See that and you're like, oh, that looks good. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I want to start with this. Does anybody know when the first time in the scripture is that we have somebody writing stuff down? Where it's like there's a verse in the scripture and it says, you know, I want you to write this down. I want you to do this. Anybody want to take a guess? No? It is Moses, yeah. It happens in Exodus 17. And for context, Moses had just struck the rock and water had flowed out of the rock, giving provision to the Israelites. And then God delivers them from the Amalekites. And then God tells Moses this the Lord said to Moses, write this in the book as a memorial. And recite it to Joshua that I will utterly wipe out the memory of Amalek and his people from under heaven. The, the biggest deal here is write this in the book as a memorial. Right here at the beginning of or in the middle of the Exodus story. It was the first time we get in scripture a explicit um, historical moment where we see they started writing the Bible. You know, obviously it probably started happening before through voices and through um, oral tradition. But this is the first time we see them writing it down. And why? To be a memorial, right? This was long after the covenant God had made with Abram, right? Calling them God's people. This was even long after the Passover meal where God radically delivered them from Egypt and from slavery, right? This is also um, after the time when Moses and his people are in the middle of the desert trying to get to the promised land, a land free of war and famine and slavery. That's when he's told to write this down. And we see the same pattern throughout multiple places. And I've just shown you in in Genesis and Exodus real briefly how it works out. But basically, usually there's a covenant, there's a meal, there's writings, and there's a promise. And, And the meal and the writings help us get from the covenant to the promise. And I want to show you a little bit more of how this works out. Because again, it's, it's, it's something that happens over and over. What do we see in the New Testament? Well, we see Jesus coming, claiming to be the fulfillment of the covenant. We see Jesus, he's the new covenant, right? He is the emblem of the coming of God's new covenant. Jesus, being the covenant, shares a meal with his disciples. At Passover, no less. And then his apostles begin writing. His apostles begin writing the gospels. They begin writing letters because of what has happened. And they do all of this, right? Awaiting the promise of the return of Jesus. One more time through the list for us today. The covenant that Jesus provided for us is still available. And Jesus, he just wants to have a meal with us. He just wants to sustain us, right? To provide for us, to take away the suffering that we might feel while we're waiting on the promise. He wants to have a meal with us. He wants to to sup with us so that we can begin our own apostolic writing, telling of the day that his kingdom is going to come, right? And so in our lives, as we're supping with Jesus and we're, we're allowing him to sustain us, we too can tell of his goodness. We can write our own biographies in the world around us, telling people of how good God is as we await the promise of God. Now, you might be a little dizzy after going through this whole Uh, this theme thing that I made here. But here's what I'm saying in all of this. The word of God is the meal. (laughs) Jesus being the word, he is the meal. The word is God's sustenance for us to get from the covenant where we first join with Jesus to the promise, everlasting life in the presence of Jesus. The word of God is the meal that gets us from A to B, right? It keeps us going. It is a communication, the word of God is, it's a communication terminal that I would say is it's emblemized by the act of sitting across the table from friend and Lord Jesus Christ and dipping a yeast bread roll and gravy, right? That is the word of God. Sorry, I'm hungry. The word of God is that image. Yeah, it's, it's food, but it's also the presence of Jesus sitting across the table with the food. That is what happens when we open the Bible. We're sharing a meal. Do You still need convincing because there's this great example from the book of Ezekiel. But instead of going there, I'm gonna talk about when he references it again in the scripture in the book of Revelation. When John receives this vision and this happens in the vision that John gets. Super interesting. He went up to the angel and and told him, please give me the little book. This angel had this special book that John knew was important, right? Well, the angel said to him, take this book and eat it. I'm saying take this book because I want to remind you, he's talking about a book here, a literal book. Take it and eat this book. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth, it will be sweet as honey. This is a command from the angel, which we don't really know in Revelation who this angel is. Could it be one of the archangels or maybe it could be Jesus himself? We don't know, right? But here's what he says. Take this book and eat it. It's good for you. It's sweet. It will sustain you, but it's gonna mess you up a little bit too. Take this meal, this Bible, and it's going to be good for your soul, but it's also it's going to work in you. Might loosen some things up, if you know what I'm saying. It's going it's to mess you up, but it's good. It's good. It will make you long for it, but it'll also stir you to action. <laughs> the word of God is a meal. Fourthly, the word of God is a biography. What I'm holding here is a biography. I know a lot of you are writing, but when I say that, you probably immediately go, well, yeah, duh. It's the biography of Jesus. From cover to cover, Jesus is there. And that's absolutely true. But hang with me, because I'm I'm kind of talking about something different this morning. Did you know that humans are the only species that we know of on the planet who tell narrative stories. Other species can communicate, but humans are the only ones that we know of that tell narrative stories, that tell stories that have a a point, stories that are meaningless, stories that just tell about what happened in your day. However, across all humans, get this, all cultures that we know about tell stories no other species does it but all humans do it there's a few things that all humans do and one of them is tell stories apparently right and so so get this all humans do it i would say there is something in us that is specially geared towards stories that is especially attached to the idea of a story and and, and can i just mention the window and the warehouse one more time right this Window that we were talking about that we can pass through to get to this better reality, that window, the word of God, it is an invitation for you to enter a better story. It's an invitation for if you're not super satisfied on doing life on your own and you don't feel like things are going right or you just have had some issues or some struggles, it is an invitation to take what you might feel like is a story that's fallen apart and to enter a better story, a a story full of wonder and awe where you don't have all the pressure of holding all the the, the plot threads together, right? So, So maybe you're starting to see the point here. I'm not talking about the biography of Jesus. The Bible is that. But the Bible is a biography of you. The Bible is an opportunity for you to see yourself in a text that is ancient, And to be personally met in your own story by the Spirit of God. Because it isn't in the text on the page, or the letters, or even your thought that that you're changed by Scripture. It's when we allow the Spirit speaking through us to change our lives. When we allow the Spirit to to make suggestions from the Scripture based on how we should maybe shift things or do something different, that's when when we're changed. That's when we're moved. It's when the Spirit speaks to us through the Word. I want to try to convince you a little further before I finish this section. Um, I'm going to do something I've not done in a long time. And I'm gonna put the King James Version up here and it's for a reason. This is from Ephesians 1.3 and 1.4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. This is a very famous verse here. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. I'm going to come back to it. But this scripture is often used to talk about predestination and other kinds of arguments inside of theology. And I think in doing that, we do a, a, a disservice to this specific verse right here. Sometimes we skip over it just to jump into an argument. But that phrase up at the top God has chosen us, He hath chosen This phrase right here, he hath chosen, one of the root words in there is the Greek word lego. Yeah, like the toy brand. And lego means to speak. He hath chosen us also means he hath spoke us. Get this image in your head. Before creation, before there was even an earth, because that's what the, before the foundation of the world, Jesus spoke your name. He spoke you into being before there was a world for you to live on. He knew you and he spoke you. This is, if you want the condensed note version, you are a word spoken by God. He chose you. He spoke you. I'm being a little slow and quiet here because that is a landslide of a revelation to realize that maybe the entire universe as we know it is a God-breathed existence of which I am a word. I am a word existing in this thing that God is weaving. It's beautiful. Sometimes it can also mess you up a little bit to realize that. He used your name before the foundation of the world and he began spinning up your biography. And and here's the deal. When we read the scripture, at least as much as the scripture is philosophy, at least as much as it is wisdom and correction, the scripture is memoir. It is our story. It is a, a narrative form biography of a bunch of undone awestruck and wonder people that when we read it, we realize is us too. We realize that that is our story as well. And I challenge you, when you read the word of God and something sticks out at you, and go, man, that makes sense to my life today or that really challenges me or that God was speaking to me through that. Realize that it's it's going to be that way because it is your story too that he's been weaving through the scripture for a long, long time coming. Finally, and this is where we're gonna end, um, the, the last thing we're holding here today is a person. When you hold the word of God, you're holding a person. Victor read part of this last week, but I want to read it together. Um, In the beginning, before all time, was the word, Christ. And the word, Christ, was with God, and the word was God himself, verse two. He was continually existing in the beginning, co-eternally with God. All things were made and came into existence through him, the word. And without him, not even one thing was made that has came into being. In him was life and the power to bestow life and the life was the light of men. And in verse five, the light shines on in the darkness and the darkness did not understand it or overpower it or appropriate it or absorb it and is unreceptive to it. All of this to say, this is creator God. This is the one who spoke light into existence. It's also the word of God and he's been with God forever. Skip down a few verses and in verse 14, this incredibly powerful, God being, Christ became flesh and he lived among us. And we actually saw his glory. Glory as belongs to the one and only begotten son of the father. The son who is truly unique, the only one of his kind, who is full of grace and truth, absolutely free of deception. But here's the key. The word of Christ became flesh and lived among us. This book is Jesus. Jesus is the word. And I want you to understand this. 2,000 years ago, when humanity as a whole was, was, was too stubborn or stuck or nervous or too attached to being in control or maybe just too simple to crack the window, see what's going on outside. Jesus lifted the roof off of the warehouse. And he entered it himself just to be with us. When we wouldn't take hold of this opportunity to enter a better story, Jesus lifted the roof off. And gave us an opportunity to see true reality in the word of God coming to earth, being made flesh among us. So, how do we exit the warehouse? How do we become truly awestruck by Christ, looking for him, right? We use this window. We enter this library. We eat this meal. We participate in this biography, realizing that it's ours too. And we just we spend time with this person right here. That's how we get out of the warehouse. That's how we experience reality with Christ. That's how we hear the Spirit speaking to us, by entering the Word of God, cracking open the Word of God. In the coming weeks, we're going to talk more about how. How do we get in here? And like, How do I read in a way that speaks to me or that reaches me? But today... I would like for you to just focus in on that feeling of, of hunger, of desire for the word of God. Let that be enough. Let's, let's pray. If you would, close your eyes and let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word this morning. Just pray that you will speak to us this morning as we finish the service. all around the room, I just wanna ask that you would spend a quiet moment thinking this morning, what stuck out to you the most of those five symbols, those five ways of looking at the word of God? What stuck out to you the most? And I want you to, to kind of hold that in your heart for a minute and let it give you strength and hunger to leave here and crack open the word of God today, tomorrow, this week, but that you would begin a relationship with it out of hunger. Even if you don't know what you're doing yet. You would enter the library. You would eat a meal with Jesus, but you would open the word and just see what he would do. Spend just a second here thinking about what symbol stuck out to you the most. Let that fuel your hunger this week to read the word of God. you for reminding us this morning of just how beautiful and how engaging life-changing is your word God let it take root in our hearts this week before we finish we are actually going to do a quick um, scripture study together and we're going to do this next week as well um, just practicing what we're preaching together and then This will be how we end. And so at the end of this, you guys are free to go. But Channa is actually going to lead this for us. And so I'm going to explain it and then she's going to do it. So here's how it works. We call this exercise Lectio Divina. And some of you have probably done it before. It's basically, and it's a big word. It's just a slow, intentional listening exercise to just a couple of verses of Scripture. So here's how it's going to roll. Channa is going to read through the Scripture. And we're talking like two verses, maybe three. She's going to read through the Scripture one time. Then she's gonna pause for a moment of silence. And sometime during this first read-through or the moment of silence, we want you to look on the back of your note sheet. There's the scripture we're gonna read. We want you to circle a word or a phrase that sticks out to you, okay? So during that first read-through, just circle a word or phrase that sticks out to you. Maybe a couple, but don't don't circle the whole thing. (laughs) Focus on one word or phrase that sticks out to you. Okay, and then after that moment of silence, Channa's gonna read it two more times. Slowly, right? And pausing for about 20, 30 seconds of prayer in between each of those times. And on that second and third time, maybe if it would help you, close your eyes. Don't focus so much on the words on the page. Just close your eyes. You remember the word or phrase that stuck out to you. And as she reads it aloud, just listen. What might God be speaking to you through the scripture being read out loud like that? So we want to begin by praying a prayer, God, please speak to me. And then if he speaks to you at any time during the second or the third read through, just jot down what he says on those lines. That's what it's there for. We're not turning them in or anything, it's for you. But this is just an example of how to do this specific scripture exercise. uh, And it can be so meaningful. So is going to start, but let's pray that prayer. If you would just say, Lord, please speak to me. Through your word this morning. Lord, I'm open to your word this morning.
1: You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. You have been taught the holy scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us. Thank you for the encouragement of your word. And I know some of you have heard from him this morning. He's given you encouragement, he's given you a word for your life, he's spoken directly to your heart. So, Lord, thank you again so much for your word, for your presence. Who you are to each of us Lord we thank you That you keep speaking Help us to open our ears to hear Help us to have Open eyes and open heart To see you and to understand What you're speaking Lord we thank you for the word That was given this morning We just bless the hearts of those Who've received We ask this in Jesus name Amen